Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Everybody's talking about Michael Cohen secretly recording his former client, President Donald Trump. We're going to talk about it from our Law360 angle a little later in the show with our senior legal ethics reporter, Andrew Strickler, who will break down whether or not recording your client is ethical. But first, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. What's going on, guys? Guys, I'm thrilled to be here on a Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. Day early. Yeah, we usually record on Thursday. We got the we got the camel walking through the office and the whole thing. It's great. <laughs> Look, you know, some of us are going to be out later in the week. And, uh, but some you know, of us, it's just Bill, who's going to have a nice, long summer weekend. It's going to be lovely. Got a wedding in the Catskills this weekend. A- another, nice. another wedding for you. Summer. Nice. Great. Yeah, it's... It, yeah, it's, it's uh, the wedding so we did us. have a little bit of question about, oh, are we going to have enough good material for the show if we record a day early? Turns out, yeah. Keeps me stuff well, yeah, going on. Turns out. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. never a shortage here at Law360. So let's get right into some of that. Bill, we got some good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, let's start with an update uh, to a story we've talked about before on the show. Do you remember last year there was that sort of weird situation where a big pharmaceutical company tried to use Native American tribal immunity as a as sort of like a loophole to shield their their patents from being invalidated. I have a vague recollection of that. I have a strong yeah, recollection yeah. as the uh, AME for our IP wire, and I love the story. I actually so. was not on that show. I had I would think I was probably at a Is wedding myself. Uh, so by all means, let's yeah, let's let's have a ref- let's have a refresh here. Well, it turns out that the big pharmaceutical company involved in that situation lost. Cool. They are not not able to do that. <laughs> okay, let's 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 get back into exactly what's going on here. So, I think we have to go a couple of years back. Um Congress created this thing called the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. The idea was to weed out bad patents, come up with this sort of fast track process to get rid of patents that maybe never should have been issued in the first place. Yeah. And it's done its job pretty well. Um thousands of patents uh that that maybe shouldn't have been in, shouldn't have ever been been issued have been invalidated since the PTAB was was instituted to the point where people have referred to it as this like death squad of, of and it patents. And de- depends on who you are whether or not you love it or completely hate it. Exactly. So tech companies that get sued all the time for infringement, they love it. They have this new way that they can go and seek to get these patents thrown out. Pharma companies uh which make their their entire uh their entire industry is based on the on on patenting drugs and and having those windows of exclusivity. They absolutely hate it. Sure. All right. So, wh- how do the Native Americans come into this? Right. So, uh, this big drug company Allergan they tried to get around uh, the whole PTAB invalidation process with a sort of creative solution. They sold some of their patents to a Native American tribe. Back in September, the drug maker transferred the ownership of the patents for this. Um, eye medication called Restasis, um, which sounds boring, but it made them $1.5 billion last yeah, year. Yeah, there's lots of commercials. People probably know what it yeah. is. So they transferred the rights to the, the patents to that to the St. Regis Mohawk tribe, which will then, under the terms of the deal, would then exclusively license it back to Allergan. Sounds sort of stupid until you figure out what the trick is. The trick is that St. Regis, which is an American Indian tribe, it's a sovereign entity um, under the way that, that tribal sovereignty is treated in the US. So Allergan used that to say that the tribe is immune from PTAB challenges, that 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 they cannot face this invalidation process. Yeah. So first of all, you can see why as a patent nerd and us writing about it here at Law360, I have loved the story. It's super it's interesting. So interesting yeah. and creative. It's something that was untested in this particular way. And when it happened, it 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 went beyond the 
realm of nerdy patent law. The lawmakers jumped in. People, you know, the, the access to drugs is a is a big deal. You yeah. saw the remember Farmer Bro, the uh, that yeah. like that was that. I mean, different issues, but so people were saying that this was a you know a sort of a, a a sneaky move to get around this process and maybe extend your patents where you shouldn't have had them. So we've been tracking this all along. It's been sort of rolling through the courts. Right. What actually happened? So we had a ruling this week. So let's go back to June when there was um, federal circuit arguments, uh, oral arguments at the federal circuit. The judges seemed extremely skeptical of the arrangement. Um, they really picked at the attorneys, um, at the argument from the attorneys from Allergan. Uh, the Department of Justice, which was defending PTAB in this situation, um, they echoed some of that criticism I was talking about before and said that it was nothing more than, quote, a shell game by Allergan. So this week, the Federal Circuit issued its ruling um, saying that tribal sovereign immunity does not apply. The board's reviews, according to the court, are more like it's more like an uh, an agency enforcement action than a civil mm-hmm. case yeah. where like a civil lawsuit where where this kind of thing would where the tribal immunity would would get them out um, from the responsibility. Okay. Um, it's an interesting situation in terms of the the drug maker themselves, but it's you know there's there's other situations uh, that, that that sort of are implicated here. A lot of big universities have huge research departments. They own patents, and they have also trotted out this idea, saying that they are a state actor. Yeah, so it's um, like state immunity. Exactly. So that the, the reasoning of this ruling raises new questions mm-hmm. about that other stuff. So it. And again, it's it feels sometimes with this wonky patent stuff like you were in the weeds, but yeah. I mean, this is one this is one drug and it was 1.5 billion dollars right. in a of year. So you extrapolate that out to all these universities, it's it's a really big issue. Um, so high. it'll be interesting to watch what happens going forward. So folks, I mean, I know we don't always get around to my neck of the woods here when we talk on the podcast, but I I I would suspect that a lot of listeners have been hearing about all these purported trade wars we're in. Wait a minute. Are we about to do trade law with A-law? It's trade law! A-law! Yes. Love it. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Um... Yeah, so like I say, uh, every other week, every other day, really, there's some random headline that you've probably seen about Donald Trump threatening to raise tariffs, the U.S. being hit with with retaliatory tariffs. And I thought it would be good to just kind of situate everybody and say exactly, here's what is going on. Here's why you keep seeing this stuff in the news. Explain so, this to me like I'm a child. I don't know why we have, I mean, it's not that complicated. I mean, it, right. It's definitely a lot easier than it's this patent stuff we just went off. Alex Lawson. It's just there's an overwhelming <laughs> amount of it. There, there's a lot of it going right. on. So okay. who are we, just set the scene, who are we going to fight with? Okay, well, the, the short answer for that one is basically everybody <laughs> right now. Um, but the trade, the, the big trade drama that you're hearing about now is basically being waged on two different fronts. Uh, first of all, earlier this year, the United States slapped uh, tariffs on imported steel and aluminum. We actually did talk about this one on the mm-hmm. podcast. This is the investigation where Donald Trump said, I'm imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, based on national security, if you recall. Yeah, and that this. was a law that hadn't been used in yeah, decades. decades. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It, it, it dates back to the Cold War. And that applies to just about everybody now. There's a handful of countries that have negotiated a managed trade solution, but... Um, It applies basically across the board, including to our most major trade partners, the European Union, Canada, Mexico. And it just seems very weird to people saying imports from these countries are a threat to our national security. Right. And what's happened now, um, in addition to 
the effects of those tariffs is that other governments are now beginning to hit back and put tariffs on U.S. goods. They're, right. they're, 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 they're in retaliation. Right. And there's been this like sprawling set of like litigation in at the World Trade Organization and other things, and people are just kind of um, going from, from pillar to post so on, on what's covered and what's not covered. who's in trouble in the U.S. economy based on those retaliatory tariffs? Like who's getting hit by those? For, for now, it's, it's, it's concentrated most um, in the agricultural sector. Um, our nation's farmers are always the first people against the wall right. whenever stuff yeah. like this happens. And actually, this is what uh, the most sort of recent uh, turn of the screw here was. Uh, President Trump uh, imposed or teed up this like $12 billion aid package for mm-hmm. the nation's farmers, which they were kind of like, I'm glad that you gave us twelve billion dollars, but we'd like to just not have these tariffs around anymore. So you mentioned, but you mentioned that there are two there's fronts two. here. So, so what's the because uh, we haven't said the word China yet? Yes, so. right. Uh, yeah. So the steel and aluminum tariffs apply to everybody, including China. But the other thing that you hear about all the time is uh, this this bilateral fight just with China. Um, so far, the United States has imposed. Uh, tariffs on $34 billion worth of Chinese imports into our economy. And the reason for that... I think we should say that number again. $34 billion. $34 And the reason for that is that this gets extremely wonky, but there's basically like a fleet of rules that are at play in China that make it harder for U.S. tech companies to do business there. It's like this thing where if you want to do business there, you have to hand over your sensitive source code and sometimes trade secrets to what is essentially like government-backed actors. Uh, The U.S. doesn't like that. They haven't liked that for many years. We used to do this stuff where, you know, you would kind of like just invite them to summits and try to try to exert some geopolitical pressure. The Trump administration has taken a more aggressive tack. As I said, we've got tariffs on $34 billion uh, worth of Chinese goods. And furthermore, uh, they've already set in motion the plan to uh, impose tariffs on another $216 billion worth that of Chinese goods. That is a crazy goods. number. It's a crazy number. And it, and it could get even crazier because Trump uh, was on, uh, did some interview last week and he said, I'm basically ready to go to about $500 billion. And the reason that that is significant is not just because it's a half a trillion dollars and it's a huge deal uh, empirically. It's because last year we we imported about 507-ish billion dollars uh-huh. worth of goods from China. And so at that point, you're talking about literally placing a punitive tariff on literally every product you bring in from China. So what is that going to mean for just a consumer, like the average American out there? Because I imagine if you're putting all these conditions on China, it's a lot of the stuff we import is like TVs and, you know, things that the average person buys. That's And, and, and you're you're right on the right track there because it's um, so far this like first tranche of tariffs on this $34 billion is mostly on industrial goods, technical components. It's things that are kind of like up the supply chain. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you haven't seen a lot of prices go up because it doesn't it like you, the consumer, are not buying that stuff at the point of right. purchase. But um, if if it escalates to about 500 billion and China, which has retaliated in kind at every step of the way here, just like I was talking about the steel and aluminum stuff, like you're eventually going to hit consumer products uh, and, and, and you're going to feel that in your wallet when you go to buy those products because if there's less competition in the market, domestic producers can charge basically whatever they want. Well, and, that, and that's sort of the whole thing, right? That's why we didn't used to do this because yeah <laughs> and i mean this is also i know alex you hate the term trade war but <laughs> yeah. this is what people mean when they say trade war that like one country starts and then another retaliates and then the first country goes back again and it just it there's no these natural start, end point these start the, the reason this becomes such a big deal is because it starts as a relatively quaint dispute i'm worried about steel and aluminum i think it's a national security risk a lot of people don't believe that but fine I'm worried about these rules about that about like weird Chinese intellectual property and technology rules. And now you've got like you know you fast forward a couple of months later and there's like tariffs on 
you know, soybeans right. and refrigerators. It's like, and, oh my god, I blacked out for a second. Yeah. Right? I, I put tariffs on everything. Oh my god. And <laughs> yeah. the sort of the you know the protectionist line on tariffs is like, well, you know, you protect domestic manufacturers. They're getting killed by these imports. But it's a globally connected economy now, and there are so many producers that rely on foreign goods. Right. So if you're so if you're imposing tariffs to make a political point, you're causing a lot of disruption. And we're already for a seeing all that stuff with with the the automakers, right? I know the automakers are now pushing back on some of the. Yeah. Right. Well, this is the other thing that's in the offing is that that same weird national security law that's being used to levy the steel and aluminum tariffs. The administration is in the next couple of weeks expected to maybe tee up tariffs on cars and car parts, also citing national security. All right. So, I mean, we're really <laughs> setting the stage here where there's a lot of trade fights going on. I feel like you did a good explainer for people that aren't following them closely. But what does the administration view as the ultimate result they want here? What's the end game? Are they stockpiling gold? <laughs> <laughs> I, guys, I just had to make a mercantilism joke. Come on. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, the end game, great question. Uh, people would love to know. I would love to know, for one thing, um, especially since I reported People are asking. Many, many people are asking. Nobody's really saying. Um, <laughs> what the White House would tell you is that we are taking a tougher line than not just President Obama, but presidents in both administrations before have been too weak. You know, they just want to, like, negotiate these problems away, and it moves too slowly, and we don't like it. We're using the tariffs as leverage. We're going to, like, bring these people to the table and say, hey— you know, you, you drop these barriers we don't like, or we're just going to keep piling tariffs on you. The but isn't the other side going to do that too? And that, well, that's that's exactly what's happening. And more to the point, um, at least as of now, there's really not a lot of dialogue happening. The administration is not inviting, I, I mean, well, you, you can debate whether or not they're inviting, but there are no talks being held. So uh, Trump uh, just yesterday tweeted out, tariffs are great. That was a direct quote. He said, tariffs are great. And then he said, they're great for, for you know, leverage when you're negotiating. But there's not a lot of leverage to exert when there are no negotiations being held. So um, uh, I don't have a good button here for telling you about how it's all going to end. And that's yeah. what a lot of U.S. businesses and economists and everybody else who's tracking this would like to know. But, um, you know, the, the worm keeps turning and, uh, you know, I'll be there just, um, you know, lonely on that trade law beat. Night here. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. We have one of the Michael Cohen tapes, the secret recording of President Trump back in 2016 made by Cohen, in which he and then candidate Trump discuss arrangements surrounding a payment to former Playboy playmate Karen McDougal that was made by a third party. Everybody's talking about recordings that Donald Trump's former attorney Michael Cohen made of conversations they had. A lot of hay is going to be made about the content of those conversations, but we have a special guest this week, Andrew Strickler, our legal ethics reporter, to break down whether or not what Cohen did with those recordings was legal and whether or not it was ethical. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So for anybody who wasn't following along with this big, splashy story, give us the contours about what exactly Michael Cohen was doing here. Well, it looks like Michael Cohen recorded at least one conversation with Donald Trump. Uh, this was back in September 2016, yeah. uh, just a few weeks before the big election. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump apparently was not aware that this conversation was being recorded. 
you know, and now with the FBI raid on Cohen's offices and his homes in New York City earlier this year, all of these many, many materials, including recordings that he made in his office, are in the hands of the government. And now we, we saw just last night some of these recordings have come out, right? It was these the, the, the payments involving this former Playboy model? That's right. The 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 recording that was released to CNN by Cohen's attorney, his current attorney, uh, are, is a conversation in which Cohen and, and Donald Trump are discussing uh, payments made. They're talking about making to uh, David Pecker. David Pecker is the CEO of American Media, the publisher of National Enquirer, and the National Enquirer, as we know had paid Karen McDougal, one of the women who has accused Donald Trump of saying having an affair with her, uh, paid her for her story. And the conversation they're discussing, Cohen and Trump are discussing uh, an arrangement in which they are going to then buy the rights to that story. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David, you know, so that... I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and I spoke to me. And lest there be any confusion um, about what they're actually talking about, there is a segment of the recording that was released to CNN where Cohen and and Trump are talking about financing and payments to specific people, and it's 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 uh, it's it's rather telling. About it when it comes time for the financing, which will be listen, what financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, 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 no. I got no. The recording there is obviously not the greatest quality, as surreptitious recordings often. <laughs> but um, you can hear the change rattling around in Michael Cohen's pocket. <laughs> but you could hear them talking about the way that this this payment yes. would happen, and you know, it's yeah, something like cash the, or no cash. Right. And it's something the press has been fixating on this week and is going to fixate on going forward. But what we want to talk about today is the legal and ethical dimensions here. So let's let's get the stuff out of the way first, Andrew. Talk to us about the legality of an attorney recording their their client without without their consent. Is what Cohen did here illegal? Well, absolutely not. Uh, he's in New York. Uh, New York is what we call a one-party consent state. Essentially, the uh, eavesdropping statutes allow for uh, surreptitious recording or eavesdropping uh, with only one person giving consent. In this case, it would be uh, Cohen himself giving consent because obviously he's the person doing the recording. Uh, there are a lot of jurisdictions, a lot of big jurisdictions in states, Florida, California, and others that don't allow a one-party consent. It's a multiple-party consent, uh, but New York isn't one of them. And in terms of the law, a criminal statute, lawyers are just like anybody else. Uh, and uh, he was he's in New York, and it's okay. And uh, we should say we are in New York, uh, and even though we don't have to tell you, we are recording you right now. So, <laughs> so you should know that. Um, also, I, e- e- even though the legal analysis is pretty clear, I thought it was it was still pretty telling that that Trump couldn't resist doing sort of an offhanded uh, analysis of his own on Twitter. Yeah. He was like, "This is unheard of, and perhaps illegal." Right. It was like the Walter Sobchak school of like that. That ain't legal either. Um, anyway, so you <laughs> so you very uh, clearly explained that Cohen's probably in the clear on legal footing, but. As we know, with attorneys, they have sort of ethical obligations to consider when they're doing stuff like this. What's what's at play in that in that regard? Uh, right, like like so many times before, the comptroller relationship has given us 
so much to think about in the <laughs> in yeah. the legal ethics world. He's he's in a very strange uh, arena here. For many many years, the ABA and most state bars uh, prohibited uh, or certainly frowned seriously upon. Uh, secret recordings by lawyers of pretty much anyone, and there's, and particularly clients, and there's very common sense uh, philosophy behind that, which is that the attorney-client relationship is one of trust and confidentiality, and the idea of a lawyer taping a client without their knowledge uh, just smells so much of uh, something underhanded going on, mm-hmm. and if there's really no problem, then obviously the the lawyer could just ask the client, "Hey, is it okay if I tape this just for so I can rem- take it like taking notes or something?" Right, and that would be fine. Um, interestingly, though, the ABA in the early 2000s issued an opinion that pulled way way back on that sort of prohibition and said, "You know what? The whole idea of uh, recording conversations." Uh, as inherently deceitful is kind of old-fashioned. We're kind of beyond that. Everybody's aware that a lot of people can record and do record conversations, and there are instances in which lawyers can ethically do this. The New York City bar uh, somewhat followed suit a couple years later and said, you know, we, we frown on it as a, as a general practice. Lawyers should do this as a matter of course, but there are probably circumstances in which it would be okay if there is some greater good at stake in keeping a recording secret. Okay, so let's talk, let's break that, that down a little bit more. Um, so they reversed course here and said, like, yeah, sometimes you can record. We have such an unusual situation here where Cohen potentially thought that there would be disputes with Trump over some of their dealings, um, that things would need to be memorialized in a recording. Does that make what he did ethically okay? Well, it's hard to say what was really going through his head uh, with this. But if we can assume that Cohen was making these recordings as a kind of insurance policy for himself, meaning he anticipated some kind of dispute with Trump down the road. That brings up a lot of questions about uh, what the relationship was like and whether or not uh, Cohen would have felt obligated to not be having this conversation at all. I mean, essentially, from a legal ethics point of view, if a lawyer is saying to himself that he's at such a risk from his client that he's going to secretly tape the client does that put him under an obligation to not be representing this person at all? And certainly there are situations in which lawyers are obligated to basically quit a client who is asking them to do something illegal or or, uh, any number of circumstances. So, Right, because that's when the lawyer's sort of their own interest comes too much in conflict with the interest of that client. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a, there's a personal conflict that is raised. Uh, there's a question of whether or not a lawyer can can legally and ethically uh, keep confidentiality if they're being told to do things or ask questions that indicate a crime. You know, there's all kinds of circumstances yeah. that you get into some pretty dicey areas. So it, it's an interesting sort of world and of this question about secret tapings because you have to ask yourself, what is the intent of the taping? What is the context of, of, of it happening? Um, you know, and if it's, everything is above board, then why couldn't Cohen in this case simply always say, 
to his clients or to Mr. Trump, hey, I'm just taping everything. I tape right. our conversations yeah, right. just as, as a matter of routine. Um, but apparently that was not the case. So, Andrew, the, I think the 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 – the New York Bar Association is probably the last of Michael Cohen's okay. concerns right now. <laughs> yeah. um, he has uh, there's 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 bigger fish in the situation. But um, is this a situation where where the New York Bar could uh, could you know where he could get in trouble for for these for for these recordings? Well, I think you're right. He's got bigger fish to fry <laughs> at, this, at this point. But I think that the answer to your question is is yes because. Uh, again, the, we have some opinions that talk about sort of the dangers and, and limits to what is okay in secret recordings. But if you're in a in a position, and it looks like Cohen was, in which uh, there was a lot going on between him and the client that uh, maybe was unknown uh, by the client, then you start to ask yourself, was he also in violation of other rules, including the blanket 8.4 prohibition against employing deceit or misrepresentation? Yeah. That rule can apply to lawyers doing things outside of even their law practice. This mm-hmm. is, comes up a lot in which lawyers get into bar trouble for uh, you know, going off the hook in their personal uh, divorce proceeding, or, <laughs> yeah. uh, or running know, taxi cab coin merchants, uh, <laughs> just to, just to, to yeah. pick a random example. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so there's there's all kinds of situations in which the 8.4 uh, rule is invoked in situations in which there's sort of a blanket understanding that the uh, lawyer was playing fast and loose with the law or just ethics in general. So um, it's, an, it's an interesting one. Uh, it's an interesting point we've gotten to in this, in this case. Yeah, one more thing on Cohen's plate that we can all watch for. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today, Andrew. You got it. Thanks for having me. Our show is something offbeat, and Alex, I think you said you had something you want to talk about. You know, so often in this segment, you know, we keep most of our stories about legal hijinks uh, within our own borders. Sure. Uh, but you are, the, I, it, it, we, we did just get done earlier this show with Trade Law with A-Law. I figured we could go outside uh, our borders to our neighbor to the north. Uh, something kind of weird happened in Canada. Um, it was a normal day at the Ontario Court of Justice. Sure. Uh, until... Judge Carol Curtis handed down a pretty anodyne opinion uh, in a case <laughs> that was about the uh, the retroactive lowering of child support payments. Uh, sure. A, a mother and father. Well, that's a funny subject. I'm glad you've brought that up for this segment. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, I mean, nobody got hurt or anything. Right, right, right. Uh, but uh, they they were quibbling about, uh, about child support payments. And uh, there was the ruling and everybody went to read it. And lo and behold, it was written... In Comic Sans. No. <laughs> it's that true. That is an affront. Yeah. I it mean, added a sense of levity to the situation. I mean, I, that's what I want to know. I tried to do a little bit of research. I looked at other opinions from the well, Ontario had, Court of Justice, and I was trying to see. Are they right. all in like some normal font? Like, yeah, they're all. Times you know, New Roman. Times New Roman. A courier sneaks in there. Right? Sure. Others, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I would love to talk to Judge Curtis uh, and see what happened. But yeah, just went full Dan Gilbert on everybody. Wonder- Comic Sans for a ruling makes the whole thing feel sarcastic. It's yeah. true. Like, yeah. it does, it's not levity. To me, it would make the whole same thing feel like... Comic right. Sans in, in really in any 
Yeah. Really in any use. Yeah. It, it's... Th- do- doesn't reflect well on the user. Wor- True. Embrace debate. Worse... Worst font, Comic Sans or Papyrus? Papyrus. Mm, papyrus is bad. Worst Wingdings. Worst font. Oh, see, you stepped wow. on one of my jokes. Uh, no, it's okay. Uh, worst, worst font for a legal ruling or just like generally? Well, oh. I, I mean, there is no way papyrus in which you, one could use Papyrus in a legal ruling. Yeah, it dips too low, right? Isn't that the thing? Well, I just, it's I mean, just it's, so it's outside the, the realm of possibility. I can't even imagine it. <laughs> Fast forward to 2020 on the Pro State Podcast where we will talk about some court issues. The rule, papyrus. the norms of American democracy have broken down. <laughs> it's true. We're using papyrus in federal court. Well, I mean, they haven't broken down in American democracy well, yet. And also, but you know, we're we're here. What? It's a little weird to me though, too, because a lot of courts have very specific rules. Like the Supreme Court yeah. only has certain fonts that you can use to file briefs. Well, and other courts do that too, not just Supreme Court. So we've I'm written sort about, of shocked about this. Well, I've written about the idea of using like. D- d- where people they lower the margins to try to get Judges more get in so and stuff. Mad. Yeah, I mean we're all we're all kind of having a laugh at Canada's expense now, but we'll we'll, we'll see who's laughing when uh, Brett Kavanaugh inks his first opinion with like the with, like the ransom uh, magazine cutout font. <laughs> so that'll be good. Anyway. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on that. Yeah, we'll see. That'll wrap us up for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks, guys. We also have other people to thank for this week's show. Our producers, Kelly Marcano, Stephen Trader, and Danielle Nicole Smith. Our contributing reporter, Matt Boltman. And our guest this week, Andrew Strickler. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. You can find our show on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like it, please leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Thanks, and join us again next week.